Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. You guys are starting your own music festival as well in February. That's right, yeah. That's incredible, man. It must be really amazing for you to look back over the last 10 or 15 years and see just how much you've created. Yeah, I mean, it's been a... (laughs) Yeah, it's been a trip for sure, you know? I mean, I think we just got so used to the pace of, like, perpetual motion and, like, you know, the kind of shark mentality of, like, if you stop swimming, you die, you know, (laughs) to the point... to the to the point where it's like it really takes a conscious effort for us to chill out because we've just been swimming for 13 years, you know, and now it's like business-wise it's best for us to kind of cut back a little bit so that we don't play in the same city too many times, you know, or or make too many records in a row that we don't have enough time to sell, and, you know. Um, I mean, you know, for the few beautiful people in the world that still buy records. But, you know, the, it's... Uh, for us, it's like a conscious effort to kind of slow the slow the machine down. Mm. How how do you unwind uh, and kind of take a step back from it all? I do podcasts <laughs> with Australians, with Australians and a glass of Merlot. No, I I I, I mean, I guess I just do other music. You know, um, I'm kind of obsessed. I guess. I mean, I I love, I love music, you know, and it's not just like, I love Snarky Puppy. I mean, it's like, I'm always trying to play with as many different people as I can that I respect. And, you know, I just uh, went in on a studio with my, an old friend of mine. So now we're like working here every day and, and bringing in new projects. And I just started a new band actually that I'm super excited about. That's like uh, premiering in february at the festival and um but i mean i also like you know i like to you know ride my bike and go to see music and go to i don't know museums and read i love to read you know i mean i love to i I just like learning things you know practice i'm learning some new instruments so it's like i'm I'm happy when i'm busy i Mm. guess is what i mean to say you know
Oh yeah, that was Shuff You Can by Snarky Puppy off their album We Like It Here. I'm Alistair Marks, and you have just found a very exciting episode of my podcast coming up next with Alistair Marks. This week, I am bringing you a conversation with one of the most prolific creatives out there. 13 years ago, he started a band called Snarky Puppy, which has grown into one amazing collective of musicians. I'll be spinning a couple more of their tunes throughout this episode. I'll be playing Binky off their album Ground Up, somewhere about the middle. And then Grown Folks off their latest record, Culture Vulture, is going to take us home. And if you're digging what you're hearing, ladies and gents out there in the coming up next work, you can find all their music on iTunes or on the World Wide Web, specifically at snarkypuppy.com for your good purchase. If you're someone who likes to have something in their hands and hold it, and, uh, and display it on your shelves. You'll be able to find an amazing selection of their records on vinyl and compact disc. My guest this week on Coming Up Next, the man who put the puppy together, Michael League. And, you know, while you're on that World Wide Web or on the iTunes sampling their music on your desktop computer, deciding which albums you'd like to order, switch that iTunes application over to podcasts, open Coming Up Next podcast, or go to www.comingupnext.com.au, hit subscribe, and then check out the back catalogue. If you love hearing people you love talking about the real stuff, do yourself a favour, have a dig around, and find out how some of the world's top creatives define success, what they think the meaning of life is, and most importantly, find out what makes them silly. So, now that you've set yourself up a nice little playlist, pour yourself a glass of Merlot, sit back, and enjoy my chat with the front man behind Snarky Puppy, Michael League. I read a great quote that you said, we want to learn. Uh, to us, it's not about getting rich or recognized, but about surrounding ourselves with people who are more grown. That's what keeps you humble and hungry. I'm kind of diving right into it here, but I suppose with that kind of attitude and ethos and what you're saying about, you know, in your downtime, you still... Uh, consuming and um, and inhaling as much kind of culture and uh, and and art as you can and and history and learning, I suppose. How do you define success, and do you see what you've achieved to this point in time as success, or is it a kind of evolving process? Yeah, I would say that there is success because I mean, for me, success has always been to be at the point where your only real obligation or responsibility is to make good music you know i think the that's when you can say we're successful you know it's not about an award or money or recognition it's more just about being at the place where you're not spending all of your time trying to beg people to listen to your art you know and now fortunately after 13 years we're at a place where people are listening. And so really the only thing that we have to do um, to continue to have a career for, for ourselves as individuals and as a group is just to make good art, you know, and what a beautiful place to be, you know, I mean, it was a long, a very, very, very long, very, 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 very hard road, but it was awesome the whole way, you know? And so in that way, the whole way, I feel like we've been successful because we're still friends you know, we still love making music together. We still challenge each other. And that's all really beautiful to me. But 
but I, I love the place that we're at now, you know, and also it's not a resting place, right? It's like, it's just a platform for further kind of expansion and growth. Mm. How did, uh, how did Snarky Puppy kind of come about and begin? I'm sure you've told this story a bazillion times, um, but I'd love to kind of hear how it, how it was kind of formed and how it's kind of, uh, to become this amazing uh, collective of musicians. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that whole story is a very, very long one. That would take an hour. But the, 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 the kind of abbreviated version is that I started in college with fellow jazz majors uh, and then slowly the Dallas kind of R&B and hip-hop and soul scene became a part of our community um, or I, w- I should say we became a part of theirs, which is like all the people that play with Badu and Kirk Franklin and Roy Hargrove and Marcus Miller, Fred Hammond, you know, all these kind of artists. Their bands were all in Dallas. So then those guys started playing in our band um, and we were touring and recording the whole time. And, and um, you know, as they became involved, the music got funkier and simpler. Like when I say simpler, I just mean more direct, more concise, less kind of heady and overly intellectual Mm. that's the very the very very short version of 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 the story of the band do you remember i i i'm going to make a large assumption here that music is something that's kind of been coursing through your veins for most of your life and something that you've kind of been um passionate about for a long time do you remember the first time that you uh, ever performed or ever played music in front of people perhaps it was as a child or with family or something that gave you that kind of feeling like this is something that I want to do for the rest of my life or this is something that I, that is worth pursuing for me wow that's deep I can't remember my first gig maybe my mom does you know maybe I should call her and see but I actually don't remember my first gig I remember the first moment that music had a kind of transcendental effect on me, you know, and I I was in fourth, I was in fifth grade and I was doing my homework and I had a Walkman cassette, Walkman, you know, and I grabbed a cassette of my dad's that was called the Beatles 62 through 66. So it was all the bubblegum hits. Is that the one where they're looking down the, uh, over the staircase? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, a collection. Yeah, a collection of the songs from like Rubber Soul and The Beatles and, you know, Help and all that stuff. Um, man, like the tape stopped from side one and I like looked down and I realized that like 28 minutes had gone by and I hadn't written a single thing on my homework. You know, I had just like been swept away on this trip and and a lot of it was was kind of synesthetic because i as i heard it it brought back this incredible feeling of nostalgia from when i moved from california to alabama as a six-year-old because we listened to that cassette a lot on the trip and it was the first time that i had heard any of that music since that trip you know and the songs in the same order because it was the same cassette tape and everything So there was this weird kind of like associative moment for me where I was back in my dad's Datsun driving through New Mexico, like Carlsbad Caverns and Arizona, you know, and all this stuff. And like as a child, 
you know, so it was very strange as a fifth grader, you know, um, that was like maybe four years after we had moved and it just brought me back to that moment and it, and it kind of created an emotion in me that, or awoke an, an emotion in me that I hadn't really been aware of up until that point. And that was, I think when I really realized, man, music is a thing. This is like a real thing that has real power and can move people, you know? And so then it was like, my next two years of doing homework were a mess because I was always listening to music and then never getting it done. And, you know, um, but that was, I think that was like the pivotal experience for me. Um, but I didn't start playing for, for maybe five years after that. Mm. Four. And when did you start uh, writing music? The day I started playing guitar. I wrote a terrible song that just used like the open E string, the high open E string the first fret and the second fret and then back down because I didn't even know the guitars played chords. You know, I was like third, I was like 13 or 14 or 15. I don't know how old I maybe, maybe 13 or 14. I can't remember. And I just didn't even know what a chord was. I was just like hitting the open string and singing the melody unison with the, I mean, I was like writing immediately. I mean, just horrible, shitty sound, but you know, I was, the, the impulse was there, I think, to write. I, I always think of myself more that way than a player, even though I love to play. And I suppose through that kind of process of, uh, of, of learning guitar and writing music, I suppose as you become more advanced, you start writing much more intricate music. I mean, the, Snarky Puppy's music is, to my untrained ear, um, an mm. incredibly intricate kind of very uh, finely woven uh, composition. How did you kind of arrive at the point of creating this kind of music? I mean, I think my brain is naturally kind of like distracted and tangential, you know? So, I mean, you could ask me one question and I could start to talk about it and then we could still be talking about it three hours later. And I think musically I'm kind of like the same way. I love, I love to look at one thing many different ways and I love to develop ideas. And so in the compositional process, I think if I start with an idea that's complex, it grows more complex as it goes on because I start manipulating it, you know? So for me now, actually it's more about being simple. I try to start with very simple ideas because I know myself and I know that I'm going to unnecessarily complicate things. So it's better to unnecessarily complicate a simple thing than an already complicated thing, you know? So that's kind of like how I go. It's my own way of kind of like exerting psychology, you know, upon myself, you know, to, yeah, to, yeah. to be kind of pre like know thyself, you know, to be preventative, but it's cool. And those are my favorite songs that I've written are the ones that I was just trying to be super simple. Because then I, you know, I'm like, oh, that's really simple. Is that too simple? I think that's too simple. You know, maybe it's too just kind of like basic. <laughs> and then I'll play it for somebody. And I'm like, yeah, maybe it's too simple. And then as I start playing, it, I'm like, oh, man, there's nothing simple about this song. And, you know, I just thought it was because I know because that's how my head works. And I don't mean to say this, like meaning that simple is bad and complex is good or that complex is uh, bad and simple is good. I don't mean to assign any kind of quality to it at all. I just mean in terms of like construction, you know, cause the truth is I love simple music much more than I love complicated music. But I also think there's some, there's complexity to simple to beautiful, simple music, you know, a Bob Dylan song 
might be thought of as simple, but actually lyrically, there's some very complex things happening, which, uh, which can only be revealed if the music underlying it is simple, you know? So it's like, there's relationships there. If you don't mind my asking, what, what is the process? And I'm sure there's not a kind of uh, standard rule to this, but generally what is the process when you start uh, a new song or a new record or something with Snarky Puppy? Well, it normally involves showing up to the studio a couple days before the band does with no content written and then like a feverish 48-hour period of forced composition. <laughs> That's normally how it goes. Right. And then and then I send the guys the demos. They learn everyone's parts, not just their own. And then we go into the studio and we rehearse and then we track it. And for, I suppose, what was it? Was it the four albums before you, uh, your most recent one, Culture Vulture? There was uh, you you filmed it and you recorded it in front of a um, an audience as well. What, what was the kind of thinking behind doing that and bringing bringing an audience into the recording? Well, it was kind of born out of these comments that we were getting when we were touring early on, which were like, Oh man, I love seeing you guys live, but your albums suck, you know, that kind of thing. And we'd be like, Oh, okay. Well, why? And they'd say, ah, it just feels too dry. It feels too sterile. But when we see you, you're having fun and it's super spontaneous. You know, you should make a live record. And I was like, man, the only way I'm going to make a live record is in a studio just as a joke, because I hate the way live records sound most of the time. And but then I thought about it. I was like, oh, man, yeah. Well, a live record is bringing the studio to an audience, right? Mm. To a club. Why don't we do the inverse, you know, and bring the audience into the studio? Still a live gig, you know? And so we did that, and we put everybody in headphones so that they could hear the music the way that the band was hearing the music. And there it was. We filmed it so that it was kind of similar to a live experience. And and we put it on YouTube, like before YouTube was oversaturated with content. So there was definitely a timing factor as well. You guys definitely seem to be kind of ahead of the curve with a lot of the way that you kind of promote your music and your band. You know, definitely the fact that there was so much content readily available um, when I first discovered Snarky Puppy uh, was, was a really enticing kind of factor. You know, I... I would often just go on YouTube and just find myself in uh, in a snarky puppy hole <laughs> for uh, for hours and hours. But, you know, the amount of uh, effort and discipline, I suppose, it would take to kind of be putting that much out uh, must have been quite overwhelming at times. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that the majority of my last 13 years have been overwhelming at times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean... I think I just got okay at learning how to deal with being overwhelmed. Mm. You know, there are people that I know that really break down when they're overwhelmed and just the machine just turns off, you know, the, they just hit the off switch. And, and for me, it's not like that. It's like I'm able to be overworked, underrested, overwhelmed, and still keep the vehicle in motion, you know, not at its, not performing at its best for sure. Mm. And that's the thing I'm trying to change is do less better, you know, which is hard for me because I've just been in the habit of doing too much, but nothing at a hundred percent kind of quality level, you know? So 
I'm trying to change that about myself. Mm, I think, yeah, I think t- to an extent, you know, there needs to be a quality over quantity kind of mentality at a certain point. But I also find the kind of prolific nature of, of what you guys do quite inspiring. Uh, and another thing I read that um, that you said, Snarky Puppy, or maybe it was um, that I heard in a video interview, you said Snarky Puppy is all about turning obstacles into opportunities. And I think that you guys really do kind of live that uh, ethos. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's that old quote about necessity being the mother of invention. And I agree completely, you know. But necessity kind of has two contexts, you know. And for me, an obstacle largely is thought of as negative, you know. But really, I mean, you think about so many of the innovators in history, not just music history, but history in general. And they really overcame something. And and to a great degree, with many of them, their identity was shaped by the obstacle. You know, you think about, I mean, God, there's so many people that are like that, but maybe they had an injury or something. And so they had to figure out a different way of doing things. I mean, think about Django Reinhardt, you know, playing guitar with two fingers, right? Mm. On his left hand. I mean, it's like, but he turned that thing into his own style. Um, and one could argue that he would not have played the guitar like that if he had five fingers on his hand, you know? So I'm not sure if it was two or three. Do you know? I think, I think it was, uh, I think it was two. Maybe it was two and a thumb. I, I don't I don't know, but these kinds of instances, you know. Or for example, man, you know, I was offered a gig with a big band. Um that was like paying, you know, weekly salary. And this is when I was in college and I was just dying to have a real gig. I was so ready to be gone. And I was so excited about it. Even though it's not really it wasn't a great gig, you know. But I was just so stoked to have one. And they called me and they kind of vetted me and everything. And it was like, all right, this is going to happen. And then they just went dark for like three months. They didn't tell me anything. And I was planning on dropping out of school and going to Japan with this band. And they never got back to me. And so I was like, you know what? All right, if I'm not going to do that and I'm going to go back to school, I got to do something that that is an outlet for me. So I'm going to start a band and that band was snarky puppy. And then right before the school started, they called me and they said, Hey man, so you ready to go to Japan? You know, the flights in two weeks. And I was like, dude, I've been waiting for you for two months, three months to get back to me about this. I thought it was off. And they were like, Oh yeah, sorry. No, it was just busy, but you're cool. Right. And I was like, no, I'm not. I've just, I just re-enrolled in school. I started a band. I can't do it. You know? And I think about what would have happened, you know, if, if I would have taken that gig and I wouldn't have started my band, you know, maybe I'd just be like doing something that I really don't like. Um, so, so for example, I took, you know, an obstacle, which was like a, a thing that I was really counting on happening that fell through and used it as an excuse to do something else, you know? And I, and I think that the guys in the band are so good at this. They're really always like that. You know, there was that, the niece bombing, last in july and we were supposed to play nice um the bombing was 
the night before our flight. So it was two days before our gig. And, you know, obviously we were super concerned for our friends there. We made sure everybody was okay. And we sat around, we're like, all right, what are we going to do? You know, the, the, you know, and we decided, man, we can't fly there. What city in Europe do we want to go to and hang in? You know, so we picked Madrid. We found cheap flights. That was where the cheapest flights were. We went, we went out, had like a nice night, everyone together, eating dinner together, hanging together, like a moment of kind of community, you know, for the band, just to kind of like get our minds off of all the horrible stuff that was happening in Europe. And, you know, I think you have to look at it that way. You can't just be those, you know, dissuaded from your plans or your goals just because something gets in the way of it, because it, it you know, the solution to that problem may be the thing that defines you, you know? So it's, it's, it's important to just keep your eyes open, be exhibit awareness, I think.
in those moments when when you're kind of you know at a crossroads like that i suppose do you ever feel afraid or do you feel as like is there anything that that kind of drums up fear in you well i think there's always a fear of failure and for me more importantly a fear of letting people down so for me it's like i really feel kind of bulletproof i think years of growing up as a repressed catholic kind of solidified my my wall you know of like kind of my threshold for for many things um but really i i I'm, i get very affected when people are upset with me you know or when something that i do impacts somebody negatively that's i sometimes i don't ever get over that stuff you know and so there's always that fear when there's an obstacle oh shit this gig was canceled we're not gonna have enough money to pay the guys they got to put food on their family's plates you know I worry about things like that. Yeah, I have fear about things like that. Yeah, I I've come from a Jewish background and have a similar uh, guilt complex in my uh, in my life. I think every culture does, don't they? Yeah. How do you find a way to kind of move through that when that does kind of flare up? You find the solution. You know, you find the opportunity in it, and oftentimes the opportunity doesn't take the form of your original goal or plan, you know, like for example, if a gig gets canceled, you're counting on money and exposure for that gig. You, the, the opportunity in this is probably not going to provide you with money or exposure, but the opportunity could feed you in a completely different way or fulfill you in a completely different way, like a night of kind of fellowship together, you know, or maybe singing together and writing a song. Or maybe throwing an impromptu house party at somebody's house because the venue canceled, you know, and you and it's free and you don't charge any money, but you just like bond with the people in a, in a real way. You play in somebody's basement or backyard or something, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's a million things you can think of to to still make great use of your of your day and your opportunity, but it just won't kind of provide you with maybe the things that you're expecting to have and you have to be open to that. Have you have you guys ever thrown an impromptu house party before? Yes. <laughs> You're looking at me like, oh yeah, a lot. <clears throat> many. The early days were like venue, venue, house party, venue, house party, venue, house party, venue, venue, house party. I mean, it was like really like one out of every three or four gigs was a house party. Right. And was that kind of the kind of twinkle in your eyes suggesting that that's like that was the really fun kind of moments <laughs> they've created the best stories for sure <laughs> right <laughs> we definitely got some great stories out of those nights any uh any stories that you would care to share very few <laughs> very few <laughs> fair enough <laughs> yeah there's there was one where i think you know we played and we slept in the house on the floor and our guitar player woke up and there was a white Arctic fox on his chest growling at him. Apparently the owners of the house owned like had a fox and they didn't tell us. And they just kind of like let him run around. And, and he woke up our guitar player with his like mouth like three inches from from his face. <laughs> I mean, just crazy, endless, endless stories, crazy things. Yeah, wow. There's one one thing uh, 
that I was very keen to kind of ask you about. The first time I saw you guys play live was um, in Melbourne at the at Bennett's Lane, and one of the things that I was really kind of struck by was how much of a spiritual kind of experience playing music seems to be for you. The way that you kind of would connect with all the other musicians in the band, it was almost like, I don't know, when I kind of described it to people, it seemed as though you were kind of this beacon between everything that was kind of going on. Do you find do you find that music for you is quite a spiritual kind of experience? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess as a not particularly religious person, I, that, that is one of the things I think that really fills me up on, on, on the spiritual end, you know, of things. Yeah. And I mean, you know, playing in churches kind of really helped develop that for me. You know, I mean, I, I, I think that, of course, in a church, you assign your kind of feelings of, like, spiritual reception to, like, a very direct thing, right? If you're in a Baptist church and there's music happening and you are swept away spiritually, you assign it to Jesus or something, right? Um, but if you don't do that assignment and you just take it at complete face value, which is that I'm being overcome right now spiritually based on my environment. You know, I think it's a beautiful thing to like leave that up for, you know, the listener's discretion mm. <clears throat> that you can, con you know, people all over the world connect with music, but they connect with it in so many different ways. And it's used for so many different things. It's used in militaries to inspire people to kill. It's used, you know, at weddings to, to kind of exclaim joy, you know, it's used at funerals to mourn. It's used in churches to worship. It's used in stores to sell, you know, I mean, God, it's used for so many different purposes, just based on the assignment. Like what, you know, what are we trying to make people associate this emotion with? And so it's a fascinating thing for me. And, and, and for me, I just kind of, I don't really assign it to anything. It can be many different things, mm. you know, depending on the experience. But I will say that the connection is there the whole time that I do. I play music to feel. It is like a drug, you know, or food or a drink where it's like it's it, for me, it is about the the visceral experience of of like feeling it in my body and in my kind of spiritual and emotional self. And if that's not there, it's not worth it. Like I really don't care about money or people knowing who I am or, you know, I think most people say that and I think most people mean it too. But for me, you know, it's, I really don't care about that. You know, I think all of us have played enough gigs that paid well or, you know, were on big stages with popular artists to where, you know, it's like, that's not why we started playing guitar we didn't play guitar to make money and have people yell our names i don't think mm. well there's certainly something incredibly infectious when you guys take to the stage and i think it's uh i think it's the presence that you kind of bring and it just for me certainly pulls me into that kind of energetic presence 
that's just so immersive uh, in the in the music that you guys construct and thank you so much for what you put out into the world it's really really amazing thank you man i'm glad you you feel that way about it we 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 try our best <laughs> <laughs> i uh, i finish every every podcast with uh, with one question and thank you again for taking time out of your schedule to do My this pleasure um that one question is what makes you silly like <laughs> what do you mean what makes me silly uh it, what, what makes me like cocktails like <laughs> or uh or like what about myself is silly either or Man, good music, man. Like a serious groove. I, I'm like, I'm like cackling and like laughing and geeking out. And I mean, yeah, I would say great music just makes me turn into an idiot. I mean, that's why I look like I'm pooping when I play. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> like I'd see photos of myself from performances and I just look so ridiculous, like just embarrassing, but it's just because if I'm having a good time playing music or hearing it, I just, I'm like, I lose control of things of myself, you know? So music, I guess. Mm. Is there anyone that you're listening to at the moment? That's particularly awesome. Yeah, man. Um, lots of people. I think, the stuff that I've been listening to like most recently is well, actually, you know, I'm, 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 we start rehearsals tomorrow for this tour with David Crosby. So I've been like listening to his whole back catalog, not, not just the songs that we're playing on the tour, but like everything that he wrote. And that is crazy, man. You know, just like stuff that if you tried to do that today, just, it would just die before it, even made its way to the desk of a major label, you know, because people are so scared and they're so concerned with what's commercially viable, you know, no one takes chances on, on the major level. You know, I think on the independent level, there's lots of chances being taken, but on the major industry level, it's like, you know, largely people are scared to put their neck out there. And the reason why I, I don't know that people were any m less scared in the seventies when David was doing his thing, but I think there was just so much more money in the industry that they could afford to have a bum record. But now it's like every record has to sell because no one buys them anymore. So there's this enormous pressure on the artists and the labels and it's not fair. You know, it's not a conducive environment for making art. But we have to turn this obstacle into an opportunity, don't we? And figure out a way to to kind of push through it. Mm. And what you're doing with Ground Up is giving an opportunity. Obviously, it's you know still in its kind of infancy, but I think it's incredible. And some of the artists and acts that you've got on there, and and I guess that you'll bring to a bigger stage with your festival to kind of bring it all full circle, will uh, will hopefully grow and create the kind of platform that you hope. Um, that these artists can have. That's the that's the plan. <laughs> we'll see what happens. So that's that's the plan. 
Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for uh, for taking the time and um, and hopefully we'll be turning some obstacles into some opportunities in the future. <laughs> I hope so, man. Thanks, dude. Thank you.